Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome everyone to another interesting and provocative conversation about chronic pain. We have a new guest today. Her name is Dr. Cicely Havert. She is a primary care practitioner out of North Virginia, uh, an associate group called North Virginia Family Practice Associates, and she has an extensive background in preventative health and mental health. So she also has a special interest in uh, working with individuals who have a lived experience with chronic pain. Now, Cicely's uh, practice is in the U.S., so there are some differences and similarities, believe it or not, between the two systems. But I think what we can both agree to, that there are some limitations in accessing supports for individuals living with chronic pain on both sides of the border. So, and COVID has been hugely impactful, affecting both of our healthcare systems, as noted in previous podcasts. So we're going to touch on areas such as the need for collaboration and explore unconventional therapies such as hypnosis, which I think would be quite interesting. I'm really excited to finally connect with you. And I, it's been a really hectic time. So um, it's always amazing to me when I can connect with individuals that are like-minded, that are, that are really uh, very passionate about the work that they do, especially in around pain and pain management. And I know that you wear many hats, Cicely. So why don't you tell us about about yourself uh, and where your interest in chronic pain came from. Sure, sure. I am a family medicine doctor, actually, uh, trained in the Washington, D.C. area, and I've been practicing family medicine for the last 20 years now, I guess it's been. Mm. It seems like just yesterday that I graduated from medical school and started residency, but you blink and suddenly you're, uh, you know, you've been practicing for 20 years. So, and so I mostly been practicing uh, family medicine in a traditional outpatient type of setting. I did some inpatient medicine um, as well as part of that. However, as, uh, you know, as I progressed in my career, I, you know, I, I think you also grow as an individual and you start to see medical processes and pain, you know, not necessarily through a single lens, right? Yeah. You, st- you know, instead mm-hmm. of just the, the biomedical lens, you start to realize that there's a lot more mm-hmm. to it. And there's, you know, from the psychological what? standpoint. What, humans are complicated? <laughs> Imagine that. I know. I know. And, you know, and it's funny because in medical school, you, you know, you go through this training, you think, you know, here's the, here's the textbook, you know, you read about a a disease and, you know, and you think that that's just how everybody's going to present. And, you know, that's, this is how you treat it and everything. And, but they don't necessarily treat or excuse me, teach you about some of the other aspects of uh, treating disease and especially the psychological and the and the, you know, the social aspect of that. And I think, you know, when we start to talk a little bit more about pain, that just plays such a huge role. So I, I think it was just, you know, as I went through my training or, or, and, and my experience working as a family practice doctor, I realized that I, I was missing mm. a good part of the, <laughs> yeah. a good part of the picture. So I, it was more of just a personal, I guess, quest to sort of, you know, try to, you know, be a better, better doctor for, for yeah. my patients. And, uh, and, and so that's what got me to um, starting to uh, look at pain uh, through a slightly different uh, uh, lens, I guess. Yeah. And I think we very quickly realized my training was just a little bit different than yours. I actually, I did do a family medicine residency, but then did, um, somatic competencies in, in, uh, emergency medicine and, and, uh, palliative care. So I came through the lens in a different way and then got pulled into chronic pain, but I also do some addiction work too, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. But 
you very i mean you're 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 trying to meet people where they are wherever that setting might be but you're trying to connect to people so that they can have some quality to their life but sometimes it's not something that we can generally fix or we can medicate and i think that's the really hard part i i don't know if if once i realized that it was like oh wow i need to really get myself you know better trained uh, just even around the communication piece and i still there are still huge Absolutely. gaps you know in my in in the way i feel that i um have been trained but you you just try to keep pushing yourself obviously and that's that's what's so wonderful about talking about talking with individuals who have some expertise is you're always trying to pick people's brains as well so Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, it's not that I, you know, my training is all in family medicine. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, I came to seeing, uh, you know, treating pain as something that was, you know, just such an important aspect of, you know, almost every patient oh. I ran into, whether yeah. it, you know, so I don't run a pain management clinic or anything, but I run a regular family practice clinic. But I'll tell you, probably about 75% of people yep. come in with some sort of pain. You know, they come yep. in for their hypertension, they come in for even for their, their wellness exam, and they're going to, yep. you know, bring you a list of, of, of ailments. Yeah, um, You know, and some of those things are, are acute problems. A lot of those things are chronic problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, you know, you know, early in my career, I had to say, oh, well, you know, just take, just take this medicine or just do this or just, you know, go do some physical therapy and you don't even think twice about it. But I started realizing that people would keep coming back yeah. or these 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 problems just, you know, kept getting worse. And I said, well, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> what what yeah. am I missing here? Yeah. And I think that's what actually prompted me to say, you know what, I have an obligation to my patients to see what else I can do and what else I can contribute to this um, to this problem they're coming to me for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the reality is, is that many of us that work as uh, in healthcare, uh, regardless of our role, I think we're going to be challenged even more because of COVID, especially when I look at uh, patients who have long lasting and lingering symptoms uh, secondary to COVID. So I think we're all going to have to get to be I don't like to think of experts. I mean, I had one of my colleagues once tell me because I, I have a real interest in a particular pharmacotherapy around in the palliative care population. But um, and I remember him saying to me, well, Maureen, you're the expert in this field. And I said, mm. I'm not an expert in this field. He said, listen, he said, you're in the land of the blind and you can see with yeah. one eye. And I went, yeah. okay, I can take that. I can take that. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll take that. You know, I'll take whatever, whatever yeah, yeah, anything I can help with here. Exactly. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to, I want to put something out there and just pick your brain about this as well, sure. uh, Cicely. So this is a, a manuscript that just got released by Dr. Tina Koronik, who is a sort of a big researcher of family medicine, primary care. They do a peer review group, and they basically look at the literature uh, around almost anything, but they just publish their uh, peer guidelines around chronic pain. And what they were was a systematic review of a systematic review of a systematic review. They just Mm -hmm, looked at all the evidence, right? (laughs) And one of of the statements, you know, it 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 was depressing, but it was also reaffirming in many ways. And it's, despite the prevalence of chronic pain and the subsequent search for effective therapies, an optimal approach in primary care management really remains elusive. So mm-hmm. why do you think this is? And, and are we really looking in the right places? 
Yeah. So why does it remain elusive? And I think maybe it, it has something to do with the fact that, uh, you know, partially our training, but just just in looking at pain through that single lens. Right. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. it's elusive because you look for pain coming from some body part. Right. So there's there's you know, you've got pain in your back. There must be a problem with, you know, in, in that area. Um, you've got pain in your leg. There must be a problem there. Fibromyalgia. You know, you, you look to the body parts, but there's actually a lot more to that. And, you know, it's just, you know, looking. Um, at the psychological component, looking at how the role that our brain plays in our perception and our experience of pain is so critical. And I think if you don't examine that and address that, I, I, I don't think that that treating pain will be you know as effective as it could be. And so maybe that's the elusive part there they're talking about, especially in primary care. You know, we are you we see, you know, 25, 30 patients a day. We don't have right. time to sit down and, you know, yep. say, well tell me about your pain. Uh, you know, well how, well, how you, know, you know, when did this, you know, when did this occur? Or even going back further, you know, do you have any experience, you know, trauma experiences? Tell me about what it was like, you know, have you have you, you know, been in any accidents? Have you witnessed anything and just sort of getting a full picture. Of, of a patient's experience. I, that could be the elusive part, maybe. I mean, one of the questions I love to ask in our clinic, and I think it sort of sets pe- pe- patients back initially, is that I said, can you tell me when pain became persistent for you in your life? Mm. And it's not uncommon to have a 75-year-old female or male sit there and take me back to the age of seven. I mean, the, the impact of that wow. particular event. And the significance, not that they need to go back and fix it, but it really starts to kind of paint a picture. And it also helps them, I think, become more aware of, wow, you know what, this has been there for a long time. Um, You know, even though we keep talking that we're practicing, and you're right, you're totally right, Cicely, that we keep thinking that we're in a biopsychosocial model. I mean, that's what we hear, you know, from um, colleagues. But we mm-hmm. still are functioning in a biomedical model. I mean, you oh, look absolutely. at some of the interventional tr- things. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. I was just, I, would, I just agree. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and yeah, it just, our training is such, but yeah, but you know, it's like, oh, you have back pain. We'll go see the back specialist. Go do this, um, do, do this injection. And it's not to say that, that these interventions are not helpful, mm-hmm. but they may not be the, you know, the hundred percent, the answer. And, you know, if a patient comes back to you or comes back to, you know, their, their specialist is like, well, I'm not any better. And yeah. the, 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 the frustration, uh, and then a, a lot of the, you know, there's, there's disability that starts to form, uh, because of that. And then the, you know, patients will go out and seek their own coping mechanisms for treating yeah. pain. And we, you know, you know, with your experience with addiction, I mean, that that's, this is just a, it's like a gateway to, yeah. um, to self self-soothing, I guess. The only reason I see, I work in a very rural community and uh, so resources, I mean, obviously the models in Canada and the U.S. I think are, are, in fact, I know they're very different, but in the community that we work in, it's a very small community. And so you end up wearing multiple hats. Mm -hmm. Um, So you also obviously go a little bit further and try and get the training. But what was really interesting to me is that, so most of the patients that I was picking up, and there wasn't a huge amount, I'm not saying there's a lot of substance use disorder within the chronic pain population. And I think the evidence is telling us that it's probably not as great as what we would see in the general population. But there were individuals that were struggling with substance use disorders that um, were, you know, requesting some help. And so when we would get them on therapy and they would stabilize, that was a good thing. But then when I transferred the clinic over because I needed more resources, (laughs) 
So we needed mm-hmm. a nurse practitioner yeah. and other people. Yeah, so like, um, there's only so many things you can do, right? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, because you can't walk away because nobody else has got to step up in the community. Isn't that crazy or crazy yeah, what we do to ourselves? Yeah. But anyway, what I quickly realized is the two populations. So those who develop substance use disorder from the medical use of opiates are very different than those that de- develop from the non-medical use. Um, so when we look at some of the common brain pathways, uh, and there is some evidence that shows that between pain and addiction, and it really has to do with the reward pathway. And so mm-hmm. one of my colleagues said, well, what's the reward in chronic pain? I said, pain relief. Pain <laughs> Silly. Relief. So Absolutely. it's not about getting high. It's not like a, you know, in fact, if you ever said to a, an individual who uh, was living with chronic pain, who was using opioids and had developed an opioid, because I see opiate use disorders as life-threatening complications of opiate use. I don't see them as a moral or ethical failing. Mm -hmm. So if they're not being monitored or supported, then it's very easy for patients, that brain to just learn very quickly what works. And it's very easy if they have vulnerable brains to be at risk. And uh, so from the patient's perspective, they're just managing their pain. They they don't recognize altering behavior as problematic. I mean, it's just so fascinating to me. So one of these days, I'm going to dive into that literature, because it is something that I do see um, over and over again. But when I went to the other clinic, it was, in many ways, I found uh, patients who developed uh, substance use disorders, in particular, opiate use disorders, from the non-medical use of opiates, were much easier to manage than the chronic pain patient, because from their perspective, they're just trying to manage their pain. And uh, this unfortunately has happened to them. And now they have two significant illnesses. But uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm digressing there. But no, uh, no it's, it, it's very, it, yeah, no, it's just, it's a fascinating, you know, discussion. Um, oh, yeah. You know, just, you know, with the, with, you know, obviously with the opioid um, addiction issue, but, you know, sort of looking, you know, and, and you know, there are patients, you know, chron- truly chronic pain patients. And, you know, they've, it, it, sort of the tightening of the regulation of the opioids. I mean, so it's in the opiates, it's, it's necessary, but, you know, they've also, you know, a lot of chronic pain patients have suffered because of that. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. So in fact, the, the guidelines now, I mean, in this paper that Dr. Koronik just put out, so the, overall, they found that there was more harm than benefit when we used opiate analgesics in the management of chronic pain. But in the legacy patient, so those are patients on high dose, so I think they defined high dose between 60 and 110 milligram morphine equivalent, that those patients actually had worse morbidity and mortality if we took them off their opiate analgesic. Yes. It doesn't mean that we don't need to manage risk with them and um, to be following them and also making sure that other things are not happening, like diversion and things like that. But it's I, I think with the, la- the population who are legacy patients, we have to really have these patients very differently and cutting them off is really not what we should be doing. Absolutely not. I mean, you, you can't just rip the Band-Aid off of, oh. of this experience. This is, it, it's, it, yeah, no, that, that's irresponsible and unethical. We, we see it. I mean, it's, it's sad, but I do see it. Uh, working in an eMERGE uh, department, you'll often get patients who come down from another uh, community where their family doctor suddenly cuts them off and then they're showing up trying mm. to get a prescription. So it does happen and it's very, very sad. One of the things that I want to, because I'm sure this happens to you almost probably every day as it does to me, and I, I'm always curious why we see this, but very commonly when I'm having, and it depends on the environment I'm in, which is really interesting. So so this is what I'm starting to learn, right? Even it doesn't matter how old I am, I'm learning as I go along. But a very common um, and frequent comment that patients will make when we're sort of diving into recognizing chronic pain as a very distinct 
condition from acute pain is that patients will often say, you think it's all in my head, don't you, doc? Mm. So I'm curious yeah. about your thoughts about that, because that is something that happens probably for me anyway in my, um, especially when I'm working in eMERGE, where patients uh, will say this. And so what, what, are your, what are your thoughts about why that happens? Well, it's probably, you know, something that they've experienced over and over again. It's probably not the first time that they've they've had to explain their pain experience or their, you know, their condition to somebody. And I'm sure that it, there's probably other providers that they've spoken to and probably, you know, that maybe their uh, complaints have been dismissed. Yeah. So, you know, and I think, you know, having it, you know, and it's, and it's true. I mean, some doctors will just say, well, you know, it's just, it's, you know, there's, it's just in their head or they're just having right. a bad day. But, you know, that's a very, very dismissive, uh, you know, comment to make to a patient who's truly having a, an, an experience that's, that's disabling to them. And so when, when they hear that, it's, you know, and I think then, then starts, then the stigma starts to develop also yeah. around the, um, you know, just thinking it's all in your head. And, and, you know, when you hear that, it makes it seem like the experience that you're having isn't real. Yeah. And, you know, and that can be, um, you know, that there's, you know, the fear of rejection that a patient might have, the, like I said, the dismissiveness. So it's, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a tough, um, mm. it's a tough way to think. And I think our job as doctors are to try to uh, validate mm-hmm. what they're experiencing absolutely. and say, you know, your pain is absolutely real. Right. But helping them also understand the role maybe that the brain does play in um, in the pain experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I see it sometimes as because it is one of the most heavily stigmatized illness that's that are that are that is out there as long as well as addiction, which um, so often patients have their armor, they just bring their armor. And uh, I always, uh, you know, we as healthcare providers, I mean, we're always trying to check into some of our biases as well, either, if, you know, a cognitive mm-hmm. or anchoring bias and patients have them too, because of their experiences, Absolutely. right? So sure. I think it's, 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 it's for us to, one of the things that, um, I don't know if you've read any of Alan Gordon's work that he's put out recently, The, the Way Out, have you seen that book? It's kind of interesting. It looks at pain reprocessing so. therapy. No. No, yeah, so no. it looks at pain reprocessing therapy, which is kind of interesting. But he has a an approach that I think is very helpful, and I have been using that approach. And one of the things that he says is that he turns the question back to the patient and says, do you have pain? And of course, the patient is going to say, mm-hmm. yes, then, then your pain is real. So it's a way of kind of, uh, especially when the patient, because it's often the patient, oh my goodness, I hope it's not physicians telling patients that it's all in their yeah. head. I'm yeah, sure it yeah. is, I though. I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. Although, yeah. you know what, some, I'm sh- and sadly, I think that it, it has happened. Yeah. Well, at least that's the message that patients have heard. Yeah. Right. Maybe yeah. that's not exactly what they said, but what patients right. hear sometimes. That's, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. So that's mm-hmm. the so I I'm sort of more sensitive to that. And the other thing that's really interesting is that I'm starting to realize is that, you know, in each environment that we work, there's a certain amount of energy. I mean, when you walk into an emergency room, it's a it's a high energy environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that from a lot of people assume it's all about life saving. Well, probably 70 percent of what we do in emergency room is primary care, um, mostly because patients can't get family docs or anything so um but it's it's an energy i think for someone that's already in a high intensity of pain walking through that door just brings them up a few more levels so they're in they're in their their brain is feeling a lot of danger just even walking through the door 
And so I think we have to be sensitive. Yeah, we have to be sensitive Mm -hmm. of those. The fight or flight, just, you know, it's that, you know, and, and the brain, you know, there's the brain processes pain in lots of different areas. And one of the areas, one of the big areas is the, you know, the amygdala and the limbic system. Yeah. And, you know, recognizing, you know, when you walk into an emergency room and suddenly, you know, the, the adrenaline starts to flow and the sympathetic tone goes up. I mean, that that whole area starts to light up and, you know, that that can that can change how we experience pain. That can change how we experience a lot of things in our body. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell patients that anything that makes you feel unease can actually increase your pain. So mm-hmm. um, I think some of the the work, I mean, what we need to start doing as a profession um, is starting to bring in the non-invasive neuroimaging with our clinical practice, practice guidelines. So if we look at some of the evidence in the uh, non-invasive neuroimaging around what happens to our brain, you know, as it goes from acute pain to transitioning over to chronic pain, it is, mm-hmm. it is I mean, we're going to, I mean, I could see at some point that non-invasive neuroimaging being very important in terms of how we uh, objectively um, uh, sort of use the brain to be able to diagnose uh, chronic pain uh, and to be able to pinpoint uh, some of these areas, some of these different, we used to think it was a, uh, you know, a center. There's no such thing as a center of where pain is processed. I mean, it's a, I mean, I think Mel, Melzick and Wall called it a uh, matrix, but I mean, you can call it a network. It's a web. It's, it's a web. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a web. <laughs> exactly. It's a web. You can't pinpoint it. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's so complex. And yeah. just so ingrained to our experience yeah. that, yeah. yeah. And, and, and how, I mean, the other thing that is quite eye-opening is when you start to understand how important um, these negative emotive triggers are. And I tell patients they're often the fuel that can drive the process. And that's the fear, the danger. Even though most people don't recognize it as fear or danger, it, you can, anything that makes you feel unease can be interpreted uh, the brain as a as a way of fear or danger. Absolutely, and pain is our um, you know is our brain's response to to danger. It's trying to protect your body from something that that's happening. Exactly. So if you feel you know hypervigilance, if you feel feel fear and you know anxiety over something, it's in some ways it makes sense that that there are aspects of you know of pain that can get triggered because it's all part of the the experience. Yeah, it also gets. Amp- so that's the neuroplasticity Absolutely. piece, right? So, so sure. I mean, this is the part of the thing that I try and, and I'm sure you probably go through the same thing where you're trying to help patients understand that there are two two major mechanisms that we think about, but the neuroplastic part is really the chronic pain part. And then we have these structural triggers, which are more about those body parts that can be acute in terms of causing pain, but they can, they're mostly often triggers that can get misinterpreted, obviously through that chronic pain lens. So it's, it's why it sometimes gets a little bit more complicated. So I just, I just want to talk about sleep. Can you talk about or expand the importance of sleep and why it's so elusive in the chronic pain population? Well, there's lots of reasons why I I guess that that sleep could be um, elusive uh, is, you know, just basically just because, uh, you know, someone's in pain, they're not going to sleep all that well. Right. So, I mean, there could be interrupted sleep or uh, sleep that uh, you just can't get into a deep sleep because if you are if your body if your body is constantly experiencing pain it's it, you know that, that going to that deep sleep is is something that that could be tough uh, you know the experience of pain also you know going beyond just the again the 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 biomedical part of it is just sort of looking at the the psychological part and if there's associated anxiety if there is previous trauma that is affecting one's ability to sleep um, insomnia that that in 
in essence can you know lower your uh, you know basically the, the the time that you have for good rest is 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 impacted and, I, and we all know that without sleep uh you know stress levels can you know your cortisol levels go up stress goes up it really it, it puts your body into a state where you just you can't heal yeah. and uh that this is a cycle that can just you know it can make pain worse and which will make sleep worse, which then it creates this, uh, you know, the cycle where it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to control, but you do have to find some way to intervene and improve and improve the, um, the sleep cycle on some level, at least. So we're going to stop here and pick it up on the other side and dig further into how promoting movement and activity through a lens of safety is crucial for meeting clients where they are. You're not going to want to miss that, uh, that session. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.